like to invite you, if you haven't done so already, to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 18, 19, and 20. Our sermon title is, Who is like the Lord? And the key words for our worshipers in training are pardon, sin, and love. We have come now to the last sermon in our series through the book of Micah. Admittedly, I had figured that the past four months would have been different than they were uh, preaching through uh, this book. Um, But nevertheless, I know for myself, and I pray for you as well, that this has been a worthy and blessed guide through some uncharted waters these past couple of months. Throughout this book of Micah, we have seen a beautiful mingling of judgment and mercy where God is shown to be just and forgiving. In the past two weeks, we saw Micah's preaching begin to come to an end. He begins to wind down his ministry, as it were, and in the first seven verses of chapter 7, he speaks a word of warning, a final word of warning to Judah. And then uh, we saw last week in verses 8 through 17, he he speaks a, a word of exceeding hope and assurance to Judah. Though they shall be brought low, nevertheless, God will raise them up in due time. And he also reminds the enemies of God, the enemies of his people, that if they were to continue in rebellion against him, they would utterly be cast out. We noted last week as well that in verses 8 to 17, especially there is one progressive thought through these verses and each of the sections, the three sections we looked at, they build on each other and they, they come to a, a culmination, a climax here in the verses before us this morning. This chapter in this book reaches some ways this final resolution, this final hymn of praise in verses 18 through 20. Micah has said all that he has to say and his heart erupts in a song to the utterly unique God who is unbelievably severe towards sin and unfathomably kind toward those whom he loves. And so, let's read these three verses and then we will outline them and unpack them. Micah 7, 18-20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So I want to notice three things with you this morning. One from each verse. In verse 18, we see that God, in a display, a show of matchless grace, forgives His people. 
Second, in verse 19, we see that God conquers and removes the sin of his people. Third, in verse 20, we see God keeps his promise to his people. So in the first place, verse 18, God forgives. Micah ends this book of prophecy in the way that he began, with his own name identifying himself with the testimony. He sings, who is a God like you? Micah's name means who is like the Lord. And so when he asks this question, he is, again, in a sense, putting his, his stamp on it. He is identifying himself here with these words spoken. And this question, who is like the Lord, here expects... Essentially a negative answer. No one, God, in comparison to all creation, is utterly unique. There is none like Him. He stands alone and above all things. There is no man, beast, or spiritual being that compares to the Lord. He is the all-sufficient, self-sufficient One. He exists in and of Himself. He is beyond searching out. But here in this text, Micah is thinking of something very specific. Something very particular as it concerns God's incomprehensibility. He explored, he has explored God's mighty acts of power, especially in judgment. These acts of power which proclaim His greatness. But here in these verses, His focus isn't on His might or majesty or glory or renown, His omniscience, omnipresence per se. The uniqueness of the Lord here is demonstrated principally, according to Micah, in His exercise of forgiveness. Micah says God is utterly unique in that He pardons iniquity and passes over transgression. And these two phrases are slightly different ways of communicating essentially the same truth. God forgives. What is forgiveness? I think here what we see about forgiveness is in the way that these two phrases relate. Pardoning iniquity first perhaps has a more judicial, legal connotation to it. Passing over transgression, perhaps, a more personal, relational connotation. And it serves to underscore the first. And so what we see here is that in forgiveness, God not only legally pardons the sinner of his crimes, but relationally reconciles with the sinner as well. And so whom does he forgive? According to Micah, here, God does not forgive everyone. He forgives the remnant of his inheritance. He forgives those whom he chose for himself. And so who makes up this inheritance, this chosen possession, this allotted portion? Does this divine inheritance consist only of those who are ethnic Jews? Those physically descended from Abraham, as many believe? In short, no. Mike has demonstrated this in various places. I think we see it most prominently in chapter 4. 
but I want to look at what the Apostle Paul says in several places. Or he said it in several places, and I want to look at two um, to make this point. In Romans 4, Paul quotes from Psalm 32, where David rejoices in the fact that God forgives sin. David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. This is very similar language to this hymn of praise in Micah 7. Well, Paul then interprets David's words. says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? In other words, do the promises and blessings of forgiveness only extend to Jews in the physical sense or also to, to others? Paul goes on, he says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as well as the seal, as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness, that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Similarly, in Romans 9, Paul writes, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not children of the flesh, who are the children of God? The children of promise that are counted as offspring. So let's, let's bring these texts together. Romans 4, Romans 9, and Micah 7. Micah 7, we see that God forgives the remnant of His inheritance. In Romans 9, we see that those who are counted as His offspring, His children, His heirs, are not simply those who are descended from Abraham, but those who are children of promise. In Romans 4, pulling in Psalm 32 as well, we see that the children of promise are those who, through faith, are forgiven of their sin and counted righteous before God. So God forgives the remnant of His inheritance, which is made up of people, not necessarily physically descended from Israel, but from people who, through faith, have been counted righteous before God. As I said, we saw this in Micah 4, where the nations would flow up the mountain of God into His presence. And so this remnant for whom this promise, to whom this promise belongs, this remnant would be made up of people from many nations, not just Israel. And so that's, He forgives those who through faith counted righteous in His Son. And why does He forgive? Then, according to this text, the remainder of verse 18 tells us because he delights in steadfast love. God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He longs to pour out love and grace and mercy upon his repentant people. He will not always chide. His anger toward us is but for a moment. But his loving kindness, brothers and sisters, knows no end. 
This raises a final question about the forgiveness of God. How? How is it that God manages to pardon iniquity, to pass over transgression? Is not the one who justifies the wicked an abomination to the Lord? According to Proverbs 17.15, He is. So how can God do it? By the death of His Son. God, for giving His people for their sins, can only be understood in light of Israel's sacrificial system and the sacrifice to which it all points. These expressions here in verse 18, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression are connected to the great day of atonement, which is described for us in great detail in Leviticus 16. There we read that one goat was to be killed, sacrificed to atone for Israel's sin. And one goat was to be a scapegoat sent out into the wilderness, carrying away Israel's sin from their midst. So these same words used in Micah 7 here to pardon iniquity, they're, they're used in Leviticus 16.22. There we're told that the scapegoat would bear Israel's iniquities to a remote area. Bear and pardon there are the, the same Hebrew words. So the idea here is that God lifts up, carries away, and removes our sin from us through the rite of sacrifice. But we know that the sacrifice of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. Hebrews 10.4 tells us this explicitly. And then how then shall our sin be removed? Well, Micah 7, the language here connects to Leviticus 16, but also to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.6 and 11, we see that God laid on Messiah our iniquity. And he bore our iniquity to make many righteous. In Isaiah 53, 8, we see that Messiah was stricken for the transgressions of his people. And while God delights here in Micah 7, 18, he delights in steadfast love. In Isaiah 53, he, his delight was to put his son to death. Returning once more to Romans, we see clear as day in Micah or in chapter three of Romans that it's only through the death of Christ that God remains just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Christ was put to death so that through faith in his perfect life, atoning death, victorious resurrection and ascension, sinners could be and would be forgiven. Christ willingly stood in the place of all who would believe in Him and bore the wrath of God on their behalf as a sinless, satisfactory substitute. His life for ours. So God does and can forgive sinners only through the death of the Son of His love. But He does forgive. We see secondly, then in Verse 19, God not only forgives us for our sin, but He conquers sin itself. He says that God would again have compassion on us and tread our iniquities underfoot and cast our sins into the depths of the sea. 
The language here of salvation has changed from that of pardoning and forgiving those who have sinned to destroying and conquering the very sins that separate them from God. In verse 18, God's uh, incomparability is emphasized in his ability to forgive those who sin. In verse 19, his compassion is emphasized in his ability to crush their sin. This was a good word of reminder for us. Salvation is all of grace. Salvation is an act of compassion. Compassion to be compassion is voluntary, not coerced. God does not have to save us. He did not have to save us, but He chooses to do so. He delights in steadfast love. Believer, this should overwhelm your heart with thanksgiving. Do you realize, do you remember Is it a conscious thought for you that salvation has come to you, Christian, because God loved you? Not because He was forced to save you. It hasn't come to you because God felt constrained, but because He loves to show mercy and it pleased Him, for reasons of His own, to conquer you with kindness. God's extension of mercy to sinners like us is undeserved and truly unfathomable. Micah goes on and further explains the wonder of God's compassion upon His people. He says that God's compassion can be seen here in two ways. God treads our iniquities underfoot and He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. These descriptions of God conquering our sins are steeped in uh, illusions. They are illusions to previous revelation. Most apparent is Exodus 15. Micah's final prophecy and song of praise here contains several literary links to Moses' song at the sea after God delivered the people of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. I'm going to read a, a few verses from uh, Exodus 15 there to make to make this point. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him. My Father's God, I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is, is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he has passed into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And he goes on there, describing further the drowning of the Egyptian army, picking up in verse 11. He says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led your people. You have, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard 
They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain, the place of the Lord which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So in both of these songs, the vanquished tremble and quake before God. In both texts, God's foes fall silent. The Lord in both does wonders and demonstrates His covenant love and owns Israel as His inheritance. In both hymns, God is set in comparison with the gods of the nations and found to be utterly unique. But here's the difference, the biggest difference between these texts. Whereas in Exodus 15, it is the horse and his rider whom God has thrown into the sea. In Micah 7, it is our very sin that God will drown. One commentator writes, Just as not one of the entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites into the Red Sea survived, so too the consequences of all their iniquities will be swept away by God. The victory and glory of God and His deliverance of Israel in Exodus 15. They are celebrated here in Micah 7 and then taken to a whole new level. Micah has, remember from last week, he has asked God to return Israel to her former days of glory and rest after the Exodus. God promised to do far more than that. And Micah responds in this song of praise, celebrating not deliverance from an earthly military enemy and foe, but deliverance from sin itself. You see, God offered Israel this hope. He says, although the coming military onslaught was a given, they had rebelled against Him such that there would be no escaping the physical, temporal consequences of their sin. He nevertheless promises them that there are other consequences that they may escape, namely, eternal ones. Rick Phillips writes in his commentary on Micah, this was the great problem of Micah's generation. Not only enemy armies or inept leadership but the just wrath of the holy God against their iniquity, transgression, and sin. It was because of their offense against God that Micah's generation suffered such misery and that their immediate future was so dark. It was not Assyria, not Babylon, whom the Israelites should fear most. It was God. The various deliverances prophesied throughout the book of Micah therefore come to their ultimate fulfillment here in the forgiveness of sin.
So that's one illusion. We should mention another to pass revelation here. In verse 19, we see it in this statement, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. We saw last week in verse 10, verses 10 to 16, that Micah likely had Genesis 3 in mind as he penned the final words of this prophecy. I think his words here in verse 19 give further strength to that argument. Remember in Genesis 3, God promised, despite the shame that had come upon Adam and Eve for their sin against Him, He promised to crush the head of the serpent by the woman's seed. Who would, in the process of crushing the serpent's head, He would have His own heel bruised. And so, as we saw earlier, we are reminded here, yet again in verse 19, that God extends compassion and mercy to His people through the death of the Messiah who crushes the serpent and sin underfoot. And then He casts our sin into the depths of the sea, drowning them once and for all. No Egyptian soldier followed Israel into the promised land, neither shall a single sin follow the people of God into eternity. Well, we come in the third place and finally to verse 20 where we see plainly that God keeps His promises. God's covenant love prompts Him to keep His covenantal oaths. Micah, now tying a bow on his word of prophecy, concludes with a reflection of, as one commentator put it, reflection on God's bedrock attributes, kindness and fidelity. When God came to Abraham and Isaac, He came by way of a promise. He said He would make them as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. He would give them an eternal land. He would enable them to take possession of their enemies and bless all nations through them. Micah here proclaims in celebration of God's faithfulness that he knows that God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and therefore to all His people are not dead. What God says, God does. He has sworn it shall come to pass. Perhaps the best exploration of the relationship of the faithfulness of God to, to His promises. He keeps His promises. This exploration is found in Hebrews 6, verses 13 and following. The writer of the Hebrews tells us, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since He had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by Himself saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And then down in verse 17, he says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His promise, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that at two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to set the hope before us. To the hope set before us. So God makes a promise to Abraham. This is laid out in great detail in Genesis where God walks through the torn carcasses of the animals invoking a curse upon Himself should He fail to uphold His promise. And He continues this promise to uh, to Isaac and to Jacob and to all of Israel. God was sure to bring this promise about. Interestingly enough, the consequence 
for failing to keep his promise to Abraham would have been, as it were, God being torn apart like these animals. But this is, in fact, what happens in the very fulfillment of the promise. The son was torn asunder from his father on the cross as he brought about the promised blessing to all those who would look to him in faith. And all of this, again, we've seen is born out of the steadfast love of God. God did not plan redemption. Christ did not purchase redemption. The Spirit does not apply redemption out of some forced and coerced sense of responsibility. It was steadfast covenant love that God shows to Abraham and to the rest of us. What God swore to Israel's fathers from days of old, He swore according to loving kindness and mercy. And so we can and we should and we must rejoice that Christ would, according to His own good pleasure, take death upon Himself to rescue and redeem such a people as us from our sins. Well, I'd like to close here by just reflecting for a few minutes about what we've seen in this book. Micah has emphatically warned these peoples. He's warned Samaria and Jerusalem and even the surrounding pagan nations that God would judge their sin. God was especially angry at those, remember, who oppressed their fellow countrymen, taking that which does not belong to them. We saw how perverse the political and pastoral leaders of Micah's day had become. Micah described them as cannibals in order to capture the awfulness of how they treated the poor among them. Prophets, priests, and political leaders in Israel, all they did, with almost no exceptions, all they, they did it all for money. And there was usually no limit to what they would do for money. For these sins, God says He would judge Judah, and Jerusalem would eventually be laid low, and the very temple itself would be destroyed and left a pile of rubble. Nevertheless, from out of the ash heap of ruin, God would raise up for Himself a new temple made up of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. God would restore His people to Himself and bring down His wrath upon those who had conspired against Him. And He would do all of this through His Messiah, who, despite His lowly state through His life on earth, would wield the scepter and rule over the nations forever, shepherding God's flock, leading them to safety and providing them with faithful under-shepherds. We saw that despite man's attempts to please God by his own works of righteousness, to appease God's wrath and anger at sin through law-keeping or penance, God has made clear that utter perfection Something that none of us can achieve on our own is what He requires. And therefore, we must look not only to, we must look only to the one who has perfect, who is perfect, who has lived and died sacrificially in our place through faith in the promise of God to redeem His people through Messiah. We can rejoice even in the midst of discipline. Though we fall, though we sit in darkness, we know that God will raise us up. God will be for us a light. 
He will vindicate his people, lay his enemies in the dust. He will shelter his people from coming wrath and lead them into green pastures and beside still waters. He will love and richly provide for them. While all who continue to rebel against him shall crawl about on their bellies, licking the dust. God, despite all our desert, forgives us, conquers our sin, and shows us steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, this is the great hope of Micah, of the Old Testament, of the entire Bible, that the incomparable God would redeem his people from their sins so that they might come to live and dwell with him forever. This is our great hope today. Viruses and tyrants abound, but God has not vacated his throne. In Christ Jesus, he has trampled on our sin, trampled it in the dust, and thrown it into the depths of the sea. There is no virus, no overreaching governmental bureaucrat, no morally disintegrated country that can keep you from the love of God. He will show his steadfast love to Jacob. He will, as he promised in days of old, never leave nor forsake his people. So brothers and sisters, let come what may, for God will be with us.